Welcome to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. I'm Fina Robinson-Mock. You might be looking for Allison R. Brown this month, but I'm here instead subbing uh, for this podcast. This week, we are talking to our neighbors in Canada from the city of Toronto, where the Toronto District School Board voted last year to end the school resource officer program in schools out of concerns of equity, criminalization, and racism. Now, I have to tell you, this is a topic that is deeply personal for me. I spent most of my career practicing civil rights law, education justice work, and police out of schools has been an issue that we have been, we, meaning the collective we, have been fighting for decades now. One of the reasons why we are so excited about the work happening in Toronto is that we have this powerful mix of organizers, district officials coming together as a result of this organizing and naming the reasons why police presence in schools are a problem for students of color and doing something about it, not just training them to be nicer police, not just skirting around the issue, but making a clear and active decision to end the program. We're hoping we can learn from our neighbors in Canada around this issue and that the ripple effect of their victory can flow across the country to many of the fights and battles happening in local communities that our community partners here at Communities for Just Schools Fund are taking on and have been taking on for decades. Today, I'm honored to welcome three guests to our podcast. Andrea Vasquez Jimenez, co-chair of the Latinx Afro-Latin America Abyayala Education Network, Raven Araya Wings of Black Lives Matter Toronto, and Jim Sparopoulos, Executive Superintendent at Toronto District School Board. Andrea, Raven, and Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Hi, thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us here. So first, Andrea, I want to turn to you, and if you could share us share a little bit about your organization with us and who you are. So um, once again, my full name is Andrea Vasquez Jimenez. I'm an Afro-Latina born in what's dominantly known today as Toronto, Canada, to Colombian parents. And being co-chair um, of LAN, we promote, support, and advance safer spaces across the city of Toronto that center Afro-Black Latinx folks, as well as indigenous peoples of Aviala and Latinx LGBTQ plus peoples, along with all their intersectional and multiple identities. So one of the ways that we have done this is by way of a three-year action plan, which was also looking at the SRO program within Toronto. And so it's extremely important that we not only uh, speak to criminalization, anti-blackness within our own Latinx communities, but in relation to others, which is, has been um, very much pivotal in our organizing. Raven, let's turn to you. Introduce yourself for us. Sure. My name is Raven Arai Wings. I work with uh, Black Lives Matter Toronto, which is a coalition of Black community members, activists, youth students, and professionals. Uh, working against police violence, anti-black racism, and state-produced violence. We work very heavily with the line and um, the TDSB, as well as many other community members, to build a coalition to really listen to our most marginalized um, students. And Jim, if you can introduce yourself for us. 
My name is Jim Sprockowitz, and I'm an executive superintendent at Toronto District School Board. A board I'm very proud to serve. We're the largest school district in Canada. We have about 585 schools in our system and serve nearly a quarter million students each and every day. And part of my portfolio responsibilities are equity, and that is both uh, equity with respect to what happens most importantly in our schools and classrooms, but also the extent to which we effectively engage our communities in conversations and in progress with respect to creating a more equitable and just system for uh, for all our students. So when we look at uh, Toronto and when we do some comparing about what's been going on there, Andrea, I want to first turn to you on this issue. How far back can one trace the movement of resistance against the school resource officer program in Toronto? One can definitely trace back this movement since the inception of the program that started in the 2008 to 2009 school year. Um, you've had community members take to the streets, ask their own uh, communities asking what is it that they actually want in schools and what they don't want in schools. And you've had a lot of folks saying no to having SROs in schools. You've had student-led protests at their own schools and in multiple distinct ways, times and spaces during essentially almost a decade in different capacities, organizations such as LAN, Black Lives Matter Toronto, Jane Finch Action Against Poverty. Uh, we have Jane and Finch Coalition of Community Organizations, EastEnders Against Violence, 180 Chain Street, African Canadian Coalition of Community Organizations, Educators for Peace and Justice, Education Not Incarceration, No Cops, and many others, some of them even advocating for the removal of SROs since 2008. We also have individual community members, children, youth, students, elders, teachers, principals, and multitude of other folks that have been part of the movement and resisting the SRO program in whichever spaces that they have been able to. We've also been able to see a lot of written reports that we would utilize to highlight to resist the SRO program that were completed in 2008 and had intense major community consultations. We have the Faulkner Report on School Safety and the McMurtry Curling Report on the Roots of Youth Violence. The two reports came out of months of consultations with multiple stakeholders, such as students, parents, teachers, support workers, and Actually, what came out of those reports are recommendations of more frontline workers to be placed in schools, not police officers. And Alain, we are extremely proud that the Toronto District School Board's primary goal when looking at the SRO program was to, quote, capture and center the voices of those students, families, and communities who have been traditionally excluded, marginalized, and or discounted, end quote, which is actually found in page one of the report. Mm -hmm. And this anti-oppression and equitable lens is very much definitely pivotal in leading to the Toronto District School Board staff decision of recommending to the board the discontinuing of the SRO program. And this had Essentially, with this resistance, which can also be deemed within the lens that one takes, led to the voting in favor of the president's historical decision at the TDSB. Andrea, has there been any pushback from these recommendations, from this vote, or from your organizing? Although we had this victory at the Toronto District School Board that there has been mass resistance against the SRO program for many years and by many different bodies, 
the Toronto Catholic District School Board, they have deliberately ignored community and student voice. And as such, resistance is still very much continuing in Toronto and will definitely be heightening against the Catholic Board since we have very much noticed how intentional they've been in deliberately ignoring, denying, and silencing the outcries of those most negatively impacted. I wanted to back up a little bit and Raven follow up with you. Uh, when, I, when I was doing a little bit of research on this, I had heard that some of the um, concerns around the presence of police officers in schools was sparked when there was a very young child who was handcuffed and arrested at school. I wonder if you could share a little bit more about that and how that might have also played into uh, folks realizing that there may be a problem with the presence of police officers in schools. So a six-year-old girl in Mississauga was handcuffed by her wrists and her ankles in her school by a police officer who was mm. at her school. The reason that they said was because she was having a temper tantrum, and instead of calling in a professional to sort of de-escalate, um, a person who was familiar with de-escalating incidents of acting out, they called a police officer who arrested a six-year-old, which we felt like was really illegal and just didn't really understand why they needed to arrest this young girl without the knowledge of her parents. And let's just pause there for a second. Six years old, you said temper tantrum. Yeah. That's pretty much in the job description of what six-year-olds do. Am I right? Absolutely, 100%. And I think as black and brown kids, we come into this world already sort of criminalized. You know, there's a certain age where that changes for us, um, where we don't get to be innocent anymore, where we don't get to have or go through the same sort of growth that our white counterparts go through. It's a problem we see it across the United States and Canada, actually. And, you know, that's why we were fighting to eliminate police officers from schools. Let me ask you both, Andrea and Raven, you know, one thing that we notice in the in the U.S. is that police officers are often placed in schools where there's a high population of black and brown students. Is that the same in Toronto? I would say yes. They were in majority black and brown schools here in the GTA and the TDSB. We found this overwhelming in terms of our data and research that we did along working on this uh, campaign, which is why we felt it necessary to bring that to the deputations to suspend the program because we felt like if it was so important, then why wasn't it in all schools? Why wasn't every single school mandated to have police officers, which it wasn't? And so we felt like we were there. our kids are being punished for simply being black and brown. And also, even um, if they were to be in all schools, we will still see those who are mostly negatively impacted being racialized as students, particularly black, indigenous, and undocumented students. And so that's something that we've also brought to light, that regardless of where the SROs are, whether they be in a portion of the schools or in all schools, that we just have to rid of the SRO program because of issues such as those. And also a question for you both, how do the problems found within the implementation of the school resource officer program reflect some of the larger global and historical issues of criminalization that we know exist. They didn't actually consult the community when implementing the program, which was highly problematic. And as soon as it was brought in, as Andrea was saying, people fought it. We were, families were fighting it. Activists were took to the streets. And so um, you saw immediately as it was implemented that people saw the problem that it caused. Mm-hmm. 
as we know, as black folks who have you know, been resisting for quite some time, <laughs> mm-hmm. that it's a larger issue. And every major movement fighting for black liberation in North America has like spoken to the prevalence of rampant police violence on black bodies. And then every major movement mm-hmm. fighting black liberation also in North America has spoken to like the alarming inadequate conditions that black children face in schools, right? So we were fighting against the police because they are a problem in our communities. They're a war on our bodies, black bodies, and we call it a genocide. We call it, you know, a state of emergency. Right, a state of emergency that, that really begins at school for many. Absolutely, because these kids are, are seeing what plays out with their brothers and their sisters and their cousins who are older in the street. Um, not just in the streets, but people who are outside of the school system, and it play out on their bodies in school, and so they don't really get to escape. And I think the police didn't really understand that <laughs> that black people talk to each other, that we are black and brown people are mm-hmm. in community with each other, and have an understanding of of what kind of safeties we need in place that don't require law enforcement. This is very much a systemic issue. It is very much embedded in white supremacy, colonialism, anti-blackness, and anti-indigeneity. We see this within the SRO program as a microcosm of larger society. We see racial profiling happening. We see state sanctioned surveillance and punishment, and of which particular bodies, once again, uh, particularly black, indigenous, and undocumented peoples. And there's also this whole notion, a very singular Eurocentric view, that police and policing equate to safety and that there has to be safety from certain bodies. Mm -hmm. And so the criminalization with school-to-prison pipeline is also saying that instead of having administrators, teachers, essentially navigating through various issues instead of potentially a detention or another practice, you then see the criminalization of students and youth essentially getting arrested, charged, and then having to deal with larger issues within supposedly the criminal justice system. And so we see this as very much alarming, but it is very much not only an issue in Toronto, not only an issue in Canada and the U.S., it is very much a global issue. And Jim, I want to turn to you for those who, who may not be clear about what happened in Toronto last year with this vote, share with us what the Toronto District School Board voted to do around school resource officers and the type of process that the school board staff engaged in to arrive at that recommendation. Just to create some context, the school resource officer program arrived in Toronto District School Board in 2008, as Raven mentioned, in the aftermath of a very tragic shooting death in one of our high schools. Mm. And at that point in time, the chief of police arrived at Toronto District School Board, as well as Toronto Catholic District School Board, with an offer of placing uniformed armed police officers in schools as a way of deepening and supporting the relationships that existed between specific communities and the Toronto Police Service. Now, at that point in time, the school district itself, our ultimate decision makers in Toronto, the Board of Trustees, didn't vote to enact the program. And instead, what happened was individual secondary schools, and I think it's important to underscore the fact that school resource officers were present only in certain secondary schools, and they arrived in secondary schools after four people engaged in a conversation 
and really gave the proverbial green light. And those four people were the local superintendent of education who had oversight of that school, the principal of the high school, a parent representative, as well as the elected trustee. So those decisions were made on a local basis. When the program was initially created, enacted, whatever word you want to use, it landed in approximately four or so of our high schools. Now, as we went through the program, Andrea and Raven are both absolutely right. We were met with protests from the outset. And as part of our ongoing conversations and our own sort of reflective practice, we arrived at a point last spring after what I believe were intense conversations with local advocacy groups and as a way of continuing to examine our own bias of receiving direction from our board of trustees to engage in our review process of the school resource officer program. Mm -hmm. Now, what was very, very significant about the direction that we also received from the trustees was not to just conduct the same all types of surveys that traditional bureaucracies and institutions such as ours engage in where you throw out a survey to the kids and you have a couple of community meetings which are convenient because they're on the local subway station and whether anybody shows or not isn't really a part of a bigger conversation. The Board of Trustees very carefully and intentionally directed us to focus on the voices of those students and communities and families whose voices may have traditionally been discounted, marginalized, or excluded because we know that the SRO program and policing in general disproportionately affects members of certain communities, very specifically racialized communities and those communities who suffer the effects of poverty mm -hmm. in our city. So we set up on a process of doing this work, again, through surveys of the students and staff and parents at the schools that had a school resource officer, as well as a number of community meetings. And after we collected this evidence, it was very critical for us to examine the evidence in a way that emphasized anti-oppression, anti-racism, and specifically anti-black racism. And I have to say that we weren't necessarily experts in our district about what those things meant. Mm -hmm. And that's why the partnerships, those crucial partnerships with organizations like Black Lives Matter, like with Ryan, helped us have a deeper understanding of how to censor the voices of those who have often been excluded. So while we've collected thousands of responses, and interesting to note that many, many of our students who responded to the survey were indifferent one way or the other. And our ultimate goal was to ensure that our schools would be as safe as possible. But when we collected that data, we got feedback from over 2,000 students and we were able to disaggregate this research by race because we have an outstanding world-class research department at TDSB. We have that benefit. And over 2,000 students said to us that the presence of a uniformed police officer in their schools, regardless of if that person in and of him or herself was a good person, the presence of that uniform in schools intimidated kids. It felt threatening to kids. Wow. They felt like they were under surveillance. Mm -hmm. They felt like they were at greater risk. And we know that those are the conditions through which students are going to be academically successful. Right. We know that affects their well-being. So the research was presented to our board of trustees in November based on our interpretation of the data in this non-traditional way, I believe, 
to discontinue the school resource officer program. And our trustees voted overwhelmingly in that direction. So what that meant was effective last November, while it was important for us to value the relationships that we have with Toronto Police Service, there would no longer be a presence of school resource officers in our high schools. Well, there's a couple of things that stand out to me. I mean, one, the fact that the board paid attention to the responses of young people, their well-being, how they reported feeling intimidated under surveillance. And then I just want to lift up that you you mentioned that there was special attention to anti-Black racism. And I think that's not something we often hear uh, school officials lifting up, naming, acknowledging here in our schools. Communities for Just Schools Funds has a powerful network of of organizers who work across the country on these issues. And, and I know that many of them are fighting for that very recognition and acknowledgement that we need to address anti-Black racism. So I'm wondering if you could say more about why there was some intentionality around making sure that was lifted up. And certainly uh, community organizations, I know, were making sure that that was lifted up. But how is it that the district really came to supporting that part of it? Everything that we do with respect to the decisions that are made in our school district follows the data. So as I mentioned, one of the things that we're absolutely blessed with in Toronto District School Board is very detailed and succinct data, which we collect from our students and our Mm -hmm. parents every four years through a student and parent census. And look, the data just confirms what we've known for so long. When you look at the underachievement of our racialized students, if you look at suspension numbers, so Mm -hmm. let's say, for example, that the Toronto School Board, 12% of our students self-identify as being Black. Mm-hmm. 48% of the students who are suspended or expelled from schools are Black. They're overrepresented at four times the rate in terms of suspensions and expulsions. Mm-hmm. When you look at graduation outcomes, when you look at report card scores and scores on standardized tests, there is a dramatic disparity. If you don't act, if you don't feel compelled by that data, then that's, that's negligence. That's being complicit in mm-hmm. maintaining structures which keep certain students oppressed and confined to specific spaces. In our school district, because of the focus that we bring to equity and equitable outcomes for all of our students, with respect to their achievement and well-being, we have to capture those voices knowing that what is necessary for some is absolutely good for all. And if you don't start by naming it, then you're never going to address it. And you follow your eyes. You walk into our expelled student program. You look at the students who are suspended. Just follow your eyes. There are black students, there are indigenous students, there are Latinx students, and we just feel very compelled based on the data that we have to respond. That's our business. That's what we're supposed to do. Raven, Andrea, what does this win mean for the community? Before I talk about the win, I, I just wanted to add a little bit onto what Jim was saying there, just because to give credit where credit is due, I think like racism being acknowledged within our institutions and all levels of our government is largely due to the agitation by Black Lives Matter Toronto and the work that we have done to highlight the most marginalized voices and to listen to community and to 
put this story so often and swept under the rug that affect our communities and our families. And a school walkout mm-hmm. was, was organized by Line and Black Lives Matter Toronto to essentially address the conditions for which, which our students were, what they were feeling. And some youth were feeling that they wanted and they needed to feel safe in their schools and they, they didn't want to have to worry about being beaten by police in their schools or wrongfully arrested in their schools or, or targeted or surveilled or to have their families deported. These are real concerns that they were having. Um, and so it just really, it was a day well, that we could um, talk to teachers and professionals within institutions that had power to really speak out because we couldn't continue to like watch violence against our children and youth happen every day within our schools. And we still have black students just being disproportionately suspended and expelled, right? And so we really needed something to shift. We needed something to change. And it was definitely an action that was that we're really proud of. It addressed the systems that failed us, both in media, parents and educators. We like consistently hear about instances of youth being violently handled by police, right? So we just really, really, really needed to act swiftly, we needed to act and it was important for us that while the review was happening that the that the program be suspended. Mm-hmm. Because there was, awesome there was a there was awesome a huge fight. Yeah, there was a huge fight to have the program continue as it was being reviewed. Um, but we had already seen the effects of it. We had already yeah. seen folks come to us and tell us horror stories of what they experienced in schools. And we could not allow that to continue while this review was happening. So I commend all of my coalition partners in, in helping to remove the program while the review was happening because we felt like that was extremely, extremely important first. And as a win for our community, it's important. It's important, I think, not just for our community, but specifically for students, right? Yeah. You know, as a trans person myself, so many policies and laws are created around my life without a trans person ever really being in the room. And because of that, we are often left out. Because of that, we are often, there are things not considered. And it's painful, and they, like, extremely, they have a a huge impact on my communities, right? Mm -hmm. And so as students, I felt like it was really important, and I really, really pushed this in the deputation that I gave to listen to students. They know what they want. Yes. You know, so often as parents and adults, we create our versions of what keeps our kids safe and our versions of, and this is important and it's necessary and I understand it. However, if we're not listening to kids, if we're not prioritizing their voices first, if we're not asking them, hey, what do you think? What right. are some ways that we can reimagine your safety? What can we offer you? Because we're also not in the school, right? The teachers are, um, but we as community members are not in the school to see exactly how these things are going down. And so... I think by, one, highlighting the students who are most marginalized within the data collection, also ongoing, right? This is an ongoing process where engaging with students to really get their ideas, to really understand, like, what they want, to sort of reimagine a way where we can, where they can just be students, (laughs) where they can just go to school and achieve and work as people who are part of the society, you know? As opposed to people who are hurt by it or or shamed by it or gone or put into prison and forgot about. Andrea, did you want to add on to that? 
So it's a reaffirmation, again, that community organizing works, community mobilization works to be victorious, and that it is possible, right? It, mm-hmm. it reignites hope in many uh, people who at one time were almost losing hope. It also means exactly what Raven had mentioned, that our students will be able to feel welcomed in school spaces and can learn. That's what they're there for, you know? Mm-hmm. And for the greater community, I think this is also a way to leverage the precedent and historical decision made at the Toronto District School Board, which is, in fact, the largest school board in Canada. Mm-hmm. And their equitable decision to discontinue the SRO program at the TDSB by way of having an equitable, anti-oppressive, and anti-racist stance can be leveraged not only in the province of Ontario, Canada, but also be used in the U.S., be used in other areas to leverage um, those wins in other communities as well. You know, I was struck by something you said, Raven, about reimagining safety. And, you know, I think that there is um, this notion out there that we can't have safety unless we have police officers in schools. But what would you both say to that around, you know, ways to reimagine safety? I mean, I know, for example, here in the States, we're thinking about ways that we can divest from hyper-surveillance and security forces in schools and invest in supportive staff like counselors. Is that part of this process as well? You know, thinking about ways to reimagine safety and add in more supports and counselors and other sort of justice practitioners or other professionals to schools? Yeah, reimagining. This is something that's really important for us as activists, as revolutionaries, Mm -hmm. as black and brown bodies ourselves who are doing this work, that we sort of don't fall into what is the norm, because the, the norm has failed us over and over and over again. And we've seen the police actually don't make it safer. <laughs> if you look at the data from from the incidents that happen in school, they don't actually change the amount of their percentage by very much at all. In fact, they they increase the amount of safety violations that happen with students, right? And so we know that that just isn't true, that they make communities feel safer. We know that something that has worked is having a trusted parent in a school, having a parent who knows the students, who knows the parents, who has a relationship with the students so they can be like, hey, get your stuff together. Hey, get to class. Hey, make sure you're you're staying in on it. What's your homework? Make sure you do it. You know, I'm going to make sure that your parent knows that you're on your way home. And these things that we've seen completely transform a school, right? So there are things that are already working. We know that the slashing of the budget to teachers being able to provide as much as they can after school programs being cut, guidance counselors having to spread their load so, so extremely um, has all really um, led to an effect where students feel unheard and left out. And so these are the things that we want to see increases in. These are the things that we feel like we know that they work, so let's go deeper with them. Let's ask kids what they need to improve those relationships rather than having police officers do something that they should be doing in, in their own police academy. Quite frankly, their police academy should be taking care of how they conduct themselves as a community. Their police academy should have an anti-black racism lens, and we know that they do not. It's no real secret, right, that since Black Lives Matter began, we've witnessed the killings of 13-year-olds, of 7-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 17-year-olds, 
of men who were in their own homes, Jermaine Carby in, in his car, Mark Mokamba in his own home, a six-year-old, in, like, handcuffed instead of detention. Mm-hmm. Like, these things are highly problematic and are highly based on, like, the threats they see Black people as and all over, right? Globally, Black and brown bodies. And so these are the things that we are fighting against by reimagining these ways that we have, quite frankly, failed our yeah, and, and and it's not just police officers. It's important for everyone in our TSC as they're undergoing right now anti-black racism training. And it's important that our teachers and our principals are also invested in doing this work so that we are making sure that everyone at every single level is aware of the impact that they have on children's lives. Teachers are extremely important. Principals are extremely important, and they really um, set us off on our path. And some of us are able to go against that (laughs) and survive and create careers and a life for ourselves. And some of us are not. And unfortunately, there's a high number of us who who haven't been able to come back from it. So that is what we are actually trying to avoid. So when I say that we have already failed, there are already students who have left the school system scarred by this. And there isn't anything that we can do at this moment to sort of heal that other than get our stuff together for the kids who are coming now. And so I just think that that what has happened here is in the TDSB is an extremely monumental moment. I think it's something to celebrate. I think that's why coalitions are so important. I can't stress enough that Black Lives Matter and education, not incarceration, and line, and so many of us were at the table with Jim as well to really make sure that this process also was accountable accountable to the principal, accountable to black lives, accountable to brown lives, accountable to poor. Andrea and and Raven both, and you can both answer this question, what is next for this campaign? I know that this is part of a larger campaign. There are other demands that you're still organizing around. The work continues, of course. What is the work ahead? Well, we have found also throughout this campaign, and what is significantly important is organizing and demanding that our schools be properly funded through an equitable lens. Mm -hmm. The provincial government, our Ministry of Education, has been ignoring the needs of all school boards that are very much in dire need for adequate funding. Uh, We need properly funded schools so that our schools can have increased educators, frontline workers, have mental health and wellness workers, teachers, teacher assistants, social workers, have child and youth workers, elders, parents that are not having to provide free labor, community organizers with programs and services that don't have to continuously provide free labor. And not only look at adequate funding to hire anyone with one of those titles, but instead have those educators and frontline workers that look like our students in the classrooms. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, that also have a critical and pro-equity lens, even if they look like our students. And aside from that, we're also looking at punitive disciplinary practices uh, that also have an overwhelming negative impact. As um, my colleague Jordan Sparopoulos had mentioned, the expulsion, the suspension rate, especially on a black body's African descendants. Uh, we're looking also at mentorship, capacity building for increased community organizing and mobilization to highlight the SRO issue in other regions, such as the Peel region, 
at the Peel District School Board, they supposedly have an action plan called We Rise Together to support black students um, mm-hmm. to identify, understand, and supposedly minimize and eliminate marginalization experienced by black males. However, they have SROs in all of their schools. And so it's really looking at demanding that the Peel School Board look at what they're doing and look at the TDSB, follow TDSB's suit, and remove the mm-hmm. SRO program. And also looking at the Toronto Catholic District School Board, the Catholic District School Board has continuously ignored community voice. And these are definitely some areas that uh, we're moving forward with as well. I agree with you, Andrea. Thank you for detailing all of that. We also demand a process of accountability for the suspensions of black students. We demand a board of black community members and youth to approve every suspension and expulsion that happens in this province. And so it's really looking at every single district, every single place where there is education, where there is students in the care, where parents put their students in the care of these professionals who affect the way that they think, who affect the way that they relate to each other in the world, you know, and these these directly correlate with the jobs that we go after, the jobs that we don't feel like we're qualified for, um, the lives that we feel like we can or can can't have, it affects every single part of our part of our, our life for the rest of our life. Andrea, what are the core beliefs and motivations of the movement um, that's propelling this work forward? Yeah, that's extremely important, and, and it's so beautiful because about this work, it comes from a place of love, uh, core beliefs such as liberation for all our peoples, being pro-education, pro-youth. We're all learning educational spaces, our spaces that all students can thrive. Um, motivations um, are by having our own agency by further re-envisioning, co-creating, and designing our own futures, and really looking at the knowledge that anchors certain thoughts, such as why does policing and slash police have to equate with safety? Why not look at uh, one of my colleagues had uh, mentioned from Color of Poverty, Color of Change, Michael Kerr, uh, had highlighted within the school community safety advisory panel recommendations that uh, safe be changed to healthy mm-hmm. and to utilize terminology that frames safety as caring, healthy, and equitable schools, uh, which by definition, healthy is safe. And so it, it really comes back to a core and motivation of changing the framework, how we look at wording, and definitely, uh, once again, a place of love for all of our communities. Andrea and Raven, as other folks are hearing the work that you all have been doing in Toronto and the organizing that happened, how can folks stay connected with you? Black Lives Matter Toronto has a website, and also we're on Facebook. So Black Lives Matter Toronto on Facebook. You can send us messages there directly and get responses right away. There are lots of ways to engage with us. We are always on social media. Social media is basically our, our platform. So a web address is blacklivesmatter.ca, so B-L-A-C-K-L-I-V-E-S. M-A-T-T-E-R dot C-A. Thank you. Andrea, how can we stay connected with you? Yeah, and to stay in contact with LAN, you can definitely utilize our email, which is L-A-E-N-T-O-R-O-N-T-O at gmail.com. Once again, L-A-E-N-T-O-R-O-N-T-O at gmail.com. And in regards to Twitter, um, essentially it's the 
at sign Lion Toronto, L-A-E-N Toronto again. And as well to look us up on Facebook, it just input Lion Toronto again. So it's a, the same uh, lettering, which would definitely bring you to our Facebook page, our Twitter page, and contact us via email. And Jim, there may be school officials out there here in the States who want to learn from what you are doing out there. Uh, what's the best way for folks to stay engaged with what's happening at the district and school level in Toronto? And if people want to follow the work that's happening in Toronto District School Board, we have a uh, a presence across all social media platforms. Our website is tdsb.on.ca. The board decision with respect to SROs can be found on our website very simply by searching school resource officers. And by all means, people can stay connected with us through all types of social media platforms. And if they wish, uh, through me specifically, just through the website as well. So it's quite easy to find. Well, I want to thank you all, Andrea. Raven, Jim, for your time today. This has been a powerful conversation. And everything that each of you have lifted up, I could hear your care, love, concern for all of the students in Toronto. And I know that that's going to, the lessons that we're learning from the work that you all are doing there just have such profound implications for us here in the States around struggles for equity, justice, our collective fight here and amongst our community partner network at Communities for Just Schools Fund to, to end the criminalization of students, that we have so much to learn. And I'm inspired by your care and commitment to this. So thank you all very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you like what you heard, please like us on iTunes. You can go to Schoolhouse Equity and Education. Like us, give us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at Just Schools. And you can find us at Communities for Just Schools Fund on Facebook, as well as our website, cjsfund.org. I'm Fina Robinson-Mock, and tune in next month for Schoolhouse Equity and Education. <music>